Ladies rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Three cheers for His Majesty the King. Welcome back to Royally Obsessed. I'm Roberta. And I'm Rachel. And we are bringing you a very special episode this week. We know, we know Easter was last week and so the royals, there's photos, we have so much royal news to talk about, Maundy Thursday, everything, and we promise we'll get to that next week. This week, though, we are joined by author Tessa Dunlop. She wrote Elizabeth and Philip, a story of young love, marriage, and monarchy. It's out in the States now, and so we wanted to bring you this wonderful chat with her. Here it is. Row Rose, Dr. Tessa Dunlop is an acclaimed author, historian, and Royal Television Society awarded broadcaster. She's gained quite the following on TikTok for her royal analysis and commentary, and now her new book, Elizabeth and Philip, has been hailed as a charming double portrait of Elizabeth and her husband, Prince Philip, in the early years of their romance and marriage. She's joining us ahead of the two-year anniversary of Philip's passing on April 9th, 2021. Welcome, Tessa. We're so glad you're here. Hello, how are you both? Lovely to be here. We're wonderful. We want to dive right into the book and ask, what drew you to take a look back at the love story of Elizabeth and Philip specifically? Well, I had done a couple of other books drawing on the oral testimonies of women born at the same time as the Queen. In fact, some born a little bit earlier. So uh, uh, digging on the war narrative, those who worked at famous Bletchley Park, the code-breaking park uh, in Britain during World War II, and also the Auxiliary Territorial Service, which was the female army in Britain during World War II. Now, of course, Elizabeth famously, when she died, she just before she died, she was the last head of state alive who'd served full time in the Second World War, albeit only for two months. So she had a cameo in that book. But what I was aware of when talking to all these women, everyone said, oh, they're heroes, how amazing their stories. But but beneath that, the social narrative, actually the difference, the gender difference between the way in which boys and girls grew up was the traditional and celebrated bedrock of certainly British society. And I wanted to explore the idea of that boy and girl, man and woman, husband and wife. And the best way of doing that was through the poster boy and girl for marriage post-war, which was Elizabeth and Philip, unapologetically so, by the way, very deliberately posited as the ideal that we should all strive to be like. And the year of their marriage, 1947, was a record-breaking year for marriages in peacetime Britain. And speaking of poster couple, I feel like to give a bit more context, how dashing was Prince Philip at the time? Properly hot. Yeah. And that, of course, um, (laughs) posed certain issues. Properly hot. I like that. (laughs) I've I've actually deviated beyond my doctor status and done some sort of slightly um, salacious TikTok saying, did Philip have affairs? And people have had a go at me and said, this is beneath your bar, Tessa, what are you doing? But actually, they were held up as the exemplar, the way we should behave, the perfect marriage. Um, the, The Queen, you know, denigrated the idea of divorce early after the Second World War. And um, as the defender of the faith and the head of state, this was the way we were all meant to be at the the same time that Britain's desperately trying to not reform the divorce laws. So therefore, Philip's behaviour does matter in in a way, because were we being sold a reality? And you could argue, does it matter? Does it matter if the public believed in that marriage, if Elizabeth and Philip, if it worked for them, does it matter if he was faithful? But I think 
that the question wouldn't even arise had he not been so goddamn hot because he wouldn't have had so many offers. He was really good looking. <laughs> Bottom yeah. line, he I was a hot. Yeah, I pulled a drawer um, out in the uh, army museum, not expecting Philip because he was in the Navy. And there was this giant life-size poster of him. And I, I mean, I had a sort of moment. He was stunning. <laughs> yeah, I did. That's so stunning. <laughs> and I also... <laughs> this, he was also... And is this just me that's suspicious? But he's the only man I think I know, certainly the only heterosexual man who's married, who I know, who had the same waist measurement when he was 19 as when he was 90. I mean, wow. effort went wow. into his look. Effort. Wow. And, and the other thing I can confirm is before he gets married, and this is because I worked with some of the Bletchley Park veterans, he had a stunning girlfriend, Canadian debutant, Osla Benning. And she, everyone at the park knew, you know, everything else was coded in secret, but they all knew Osla had this dashing Greek prince who would pop back on leave and sort of whisk her off her feet. So he was quite a man. And therefore, marrying Elizabeth, because it was so public, was daunting for him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But she was quite a catch too. I mean, wasn't she? Uh, she was, you know, gorgeous, stunning curls, peaches and cream. You describe her as peaches and cream, which I liked. What is, what is peaches and cream to you, Tessa? It's gently cute, kind of... Cute, okay, okay. Uh, uh, girl next door. She had a very sweet... And that was one of her appeals, even though she was proper posh. I mean, there's no point in pretending that the Queen mixed with the Hoi Polloi because she didn't, certainly not then. You know, she was locked up in Windsor Castle with a couple of toffs and and, 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 and some of the, of the horse guards outside. So, and, and her hobbies were sort of riding and, and dogs. You know, I mean? <laughs> So she, she was very posh, but she looked very girl next door. And that meant mm-hmm. she felt accessible to the masses. And her look was also demure, and she had a wonderful bast, of course, inherited from her grandmother in a, a waspish little way. So she was a, a, a little poppet. I mean, if Philip, uh, at the same time as finding her desirable, I think we do know also that he desired a realm. He was an exiled mm. prince. Yeah. Um, the mm-hmm. Greek monarchy wasn't up to much. And I don't think it's so bad to think that the two conflated in his brain to make her the perfect bride. I mean, f- for millennia, women have married for more than just a man's waist size. Have we not, girls? Let's be honest. Well, one question I had too is what was the impact of war on their love story? You you had two kind of conflicting things. You had for Elizabeth the impact of Wallace Simpson and Elizabeth's uncle David on her sort of understanding of relationships and marriage. Yeah. And then you also had this generational World War II in the background and the way women were kind of their role during the war, men's role during the war. How did that change their understanding of marriage? And you had the monarchy in the background too. Yeah, and the dynamic. Well, the first thing is Elizabeth was shut away. She had the equivalent of the sort of Windsor lockdown where she had very little access to people of her own age. She didn't even go to school. You know, she wasn't even at a boarding school. And in fact, I met a woman who trained with her uh, in the ATS for two months in 1945. And they say they remembered her being very poised in front of the cameras, but very shy around her peers. So she's uh, shy. And therefore, when she sees Philip to the manor born, you know, he's a third cousin. He rocks up at Christmas occasionally. He's like this exciting 
dashing breath of fresh air. No wonder she's so impressed by him. And of course, absence makes the heart grow fonder. There's the aspect of longing. Um, Every time Philip comes back, Elizabeth is ever more womanly. You know, suddenly she goes from being a 13-year-old at the beginning of the war to becoming a fully-fledged young woman by the end of it. And he sees her in the middle in a thigh-slapping pantomime, you know. (laughs) And uh, he'd just been suffering from flu. I think he found it the perfect tonic. So uh, certainly... There was a dynamic there. The the other thing is, and this was replicated by so many um, young men and women, is that they had most of their relationship played out through letters. Yeah. And and these Mm. these very, very sparse meetings, which were often heavily choreographed. I know that people say, oh, the bombs dropped and it was an aphrodisiac and everyone has illicit sex. No, not young girls. They didn't. Older women, maybe. In fact, the uh, illegitimate pregnancy rate went up for women in their 30s not for girls just out of school who are totally scared of anything like that. Most of of the women I know went down the aisle virgins. Yeah. Including Elizabeth. (laughs) And with Wallace Simpson and Uncle David and that impact, how would you describe how that made Elizabeth feel about marriage and especially her potential role within the monarchy? She knew she had to marry wisely for it to work. She'd seen the havoc it had wreaked within her own family. She had to marry the right man. And she made an incredibly effective choice. Now, I don't think it was an easy path for Elizabeth. There's lots of clues where she talks for her 25th wedding anniversary. Um, She talks about the need for tolerance and understanding in a marriage. And Philip echoes that 25 years later for their golden wedding jubilee. He says the Queen has an abundance of tolerance. Now, read into that what you will. He wasn't a breeze to be married to, I don't think. He was pretty brusque. I'm sure he could be sometimes a bit cruel. In fact, courtiers said they found him sometimes quite crushing to Elizabeth. But, you know, this is a marriage. Yeah, I'm cruel to my husband sometimes. Just let me put my hand up there. Yeah, he is to absolutely. Me too, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what happens. But, you know, There's a real reality yeah. of that, yes, and how we speak to well, each other. Well, speaking of marital struggles, Netflix's The Crown gave a lot of weight to those rumored infidelities of Phillips. And we know, mm. you know, Phillips' will is under lock and key for at least 90 years to preserve, quote, the dignity of the queen. And, you know, then there's Pat Kirkwood and the rumors of those eighth wonder of the world legs that she had that he was, you know, kind of obsessed with. So you get into this into your book, but there's no hard evidence that he was actually unfaithful. What is your take on all of that? I... You see, sometimes tell the story of my own grandfather, who I latterly discovered had an affair with the Duchess of Buccleuch. But um, that only came out 40 years after he died. And um, to all intents and purposes, the Dunlops were a very respectable Scottish family. Thank you very much. I think time will tell. Um, I think we have to remember that marriage, especially upper class marriage, didn't put quite the emphasis on monogamy that those of among us who are a bit more bourgeois did. So marriage was about Mm. progeny. It was about property. It was about position. And for them, it was about monarchy. Where monogamy comes in that ranking of priorities, well, like I say, time will tell. But the other thing is that I think it's really worth bearing in mind, and this has changed greatly. So it wasn't going to be the same for Charles and that generation. It was going to be much harder. Proper aristocrats are really discreet. They're sort of clannishly terrifying. You know, I interviewed um, Lady Martha Bruce, um, who was a, a, a friend of the Queen, served alongside her in the in the ATS. And she's still aged 99. She died just a couple of months ago. Aged 99, she still hadn't forgiven Crawford, Crawford, Marion Crawford, the, the nanny, for her indiscreet memoir published in 1949. Mm. 
Mm. You just did not go there. So mm. what it was easier in those days, there was no social media, there was no, there was no one profiteering off your behaviour. If there was stuff that required a blind eye, it was much more easy to turn one then. Right. And so the queen, if she if this was happening and she knew and she looked the other way, do you think that was that was a product of the times? Was it in her best interest? Why? Or was she also kind of doing the same thing? There was mention of poor. Porchy, I think. No, I don't. I don't think the the Queen is not was never an emotionally messy person. I, you know, we know she didn't even hug Harry. I mean, I don't think she would have had much time for that. Philip worked. He worked for her. He was intelligent. He was more confident. He helped her grow into the role of monarchy. They looked great together, especially early on. We forget how young and attractive they were. Americans loved Philip. That your your press always said he outwowed the then princess because they did their first popover um, in in 1951. But for the Queen, like tolerance, what what all of us have a different bar, don't we? What we find acceptable. I don't know what the Queen's bar was, but I know that her mm. bigger gig was monarchy. That's what her father had broken his back doing. I mean, you know, he always claimed that being king killed him. It didn't. Cigarettes killed him. But the stress certainly impacted on him. And Mm. the queen, that came first. That came beyond parenting her children. And that came beyond, I presume, sometimes disciplining her husband. But I would say, we have no proof, but what I would say is that the idea of this idyllic marriage, if you dig around... It, it just doesn't quite stack up in the way that we long for it to, because I think we all want them to have the perfect marriage so that we can believe there is such a thing as a perfect marriage. Yeah. But for instance, when he was in Malta just before um, the, the King George VI dies and, and Elizabeth becomes queen, there's this idea that Elizabeth and Philip were in Malta together. They weren't. She was predominantly in Britain. She just popped over mm. for Christmas, leaving her children behind. So even then, they weren't actually together that much. Yeah. In all your research, Tessa, what do you think truly was the secret to their longevity and ability to stick things out? I think they had a deep respect for one another. Deep. I think they also found each other physically attractive enough. I mean, goodness, after seven (laughs) decades, do any of us dying? Um, And I think they had a common mission. It really helps in marriage if you have something beyond just the fumble in the duvet that drew you together in the first place. It really helps if you have some kind of bigger project. And they did. Absolutely. They really did. And their generation did. Their generation was the last to stay married, predominantly. Philip and Elizabeth weren't the only ones. Push it under the carpet rather than drag it out and show it to everyone. They believed in marriage, that generation. And like no other, they believed in monarchy. They really Mm. believed in it. Do you think any of the modern royals have the potential to follow in their footsteps? I think it's interesting just to think, can a marriage of this length really exist in today's modern monarchy? So Elizabeth and Philip had massive inbuilt advantages. The first was, everyone says, poor Elizabeth, her dad died, she was so young. No, lucky Elizabeth. We got her as this incredible young queen, leading the way forward for the baby boomers, the optimistic post-war generation, a symbol not just for Britain, but also for the Commonwealth to heavily invest in. And being female, being feminine, she felt it felt much less top heavy, much less British dominated than it otherwise might have done. So I think 
And they were able to lead all those young men and women who'd come back from war. They were the poster girl and boy in a way that you're not going to see again, because when are you going to have such a young monarch? We all live for so long. I mean, Charles is ridiculously old. We thought Edward VII was old when he arrived um, on, on the throne age 59. Yeah. So, so by the time, say Charles has another 15 years, which he well might, he has a wonderful life and his genes are impeccable. Look how long his parents <laughs> live for. That, that means old Will, William will be mid-50s. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. we get another oldish, oldish king and queen. So it's, it, it's not, you can't compare it. And the other thing is, identity politics once upon a time was much more homogenous. Mm-hmm. Back then, we all saw, well, they, all that generation, all saw something of themselves in Elizabeth and Philip. It's so much, even in Britain, if you're Scottish, you're probably not pro-monarchy. If you're Welsh, you're probably not pro-monarchy. If you're black, you're feeling a bit angry. It, it, so it's, it's, it's far harder to rein everyone in. The, the landscape's changed. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What was the most surprising thing in all of your research, Tessa, that you learned about Elizabeth and Philip's relationship is their 73-year-long union the stuff of royal fairy tales, in your opinion? It was certainly sold to us as that. And I think to an extent, they almost believed it. I think the great difficulty of that, it worked for them. And certainly, latterly, we saw them. They were national treasures. I mean, you couldn't fault the Queen or Philip. And in fact, I've just been sort of heavily criticised for even talking about whether Philip might have gone outside the lines. Mm -hmm. I, I think so for them, it worked. And for us, the nation, it worked. I think those who have suffered the most are their children, where you have this, while there's huge social change going on beneath the marriage of Elizabeth and Philip, you don't see it replicated in their marriage model. But you feel it when Charles and Anne and Andrew come crashing down to earth. Their marriages all crash and burn in the 80s and 90s. And the polling tells us that. In Britain, they're polling at 80 plus percent popularity in the 1980s. By the 1990s, it's 69%. Wow. And now it's at about 55%. Wow. Mm, yeah. Well, I want to pivot quickly before we wrap up. Harry and Meghan, you've been constantly tapped as a commentator on the state of those California God. royals. So we just want your take. <laughs> Post-Spare, post-Netflix docuseries, what's your take on them? Will they be at the coronation? What do you think? The first thing I would say is our press have totally let us down where – For the monarchy to work, it has to be above politics. And I think we see with what's going on with Trump at the moment, why it's so important that you have your head of state or symbolic head of state who's removed from politics. And what the press have done is by channeling their sort of dog whistle, you know, oh, Harry and Meghan are woke, that kind of narrative. It's it's accidentally, not through their own volition, Charles and Camilla have suddenly sort of ended up being the sort of captives of our right wing press. And I think that's unhelpful because what you want is broad appeal. You want the people who are like, nah, don't really care to think, oh, you're all right, Charles. Um, so I think that that's a failing on our part. Our fourth estate has failed us. In terms of the Harry and Meghan, I think they have called out some important fault lines, but they are not without fault. The way they've done it has been messy. I know from history, looking at just the Duke of Windsor and so forth, that it's going to be very hard for them to maintain momentum. And that worries me. Mm. Obviously, people could say, oh, he's got enough money now, he can go into the sunset. But it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. If you're born a prince and you're competing with a great British institution, you've got a point to prove for the rest of your long life. And I I worry about how he maintains that level of 
prominence. And in terms of whether he'll be at the coronation, I don't think he can come to a preliminary hearing um, of a court case one month and not to his father's coronation the next, especially as he doesn't, in the book and in the interviews, his beef hasn't been with his father, really, mm-hmm. or with the monarchy. He, he sort of is still a monarchist, Harry. That's what's the interesting yeah. contradiction yeah. there. I know. It's very, very true. Love those insights. Are you, Tessa, going to be at the coronation? What is your plan? Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, I, I'm by definition, just when you're living in London, you're already being bombarded. <laughs> you're a part of it. You can't avoid it. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm very much part of it. I'm happy to drop by if you want me to come again and give you an insight yes, or two. Yes, please come I mean, back. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I've done, I've, I've sort of researched um, the last four coronations. So it will be interesting to see how different this one is. It's a kind of contradiction. On the one hand, it, it needs to be smaller and less ostentatious. Britain is smaller and, you know, we've seen extraordinary national decline. Um, but you don't want to reflect that in a coronation. So how are you going to, how are you going to weld these, these contradictions together? And also in an era of democracy, of identity politics, this is an unelected white old king. And, and that is also interesting for Charles yeah. to have to square that circle. And yet, on the other hand, what we know of him, environmental, quite a gentleman, a listener, with kind of wonderfully kooky, unpopular hobbies. Like he's, one of his passions is Romania, which has always been given a drubbing <laughs> in our press. You know, so I, I kind of think, wow, it's this hodgepodge. But of course, over the top of it all, a bit like icing a cake, is the extraordinary pomp and ceremony. So he will be protected. Mm. He'll be like cocooned. And that cocoon is what Harry gave up. Mm-hmm. And that's why I worry for him going forward because it's yeah. incredibly powerful. Just a uniform in itself. We've seen that once Andrew and Harry are out of uniform. How yeah. much diminished they look really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, That's Tessa, so it is such a thrill to get to talk with you. Your book, I've felt like I've cocooned away from my family with it this last couple of weeks having <laughs> it. It's just a delight. And it's nice to kind of be transported back to the beginnings of Elizabeth and Philip's courtship and everything. So we really appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you so much for joining oh, us. Oh, thank you. And I, I've got I've got to agree with you. It was that, that bit of their relationship to me, I kind of lost interest by the 60s. You know, for me, I didn't lose interest, but the, oh, it was the... The 40s and 50s, there's just something so powerful about it, that that idea of youth, optimism, the post-war world, something we'll never see the like of again. And of course, the Queen, one of the last people who tied us back to the Blitz, to Winston Churchill, and to when being American and British, boy, it really meant something, eh? (laughs) So true. Well, thank you again for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Roberta, how nice to flash back to the era, early era of Elizabeth and Philip and their relationship. That was such a fantastic conversation. You guys, on that note, till next week. God save the pod. Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.